0: Uh, the second part of the New Testament, focusing on St. Paul's hymns of Christ. In St. Paul, as we mentioned earlier in the first lesson, we find two great themes for how Christ has redeemed man. The first theme is the justification of the sinner in Christ. That as Galatians teaches and Romans teaches, that we are justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, not by works of the old law, not by the law of Moses, not by circumcision, but we are justified by faith in Christ and with all the things that go with that, baptism and other elements of the new law. In Greek, the word is dikaiosune, which literally means righteousness or justice. So when Paul speaks of justification, it's not simply our word justice, but it's also righteousness. It's that we in Christ have been made righteous. We share in the righteousness of God, as he puts it in Romans 2. So that theme that we spoke about at the beginning of God making a holy people, a people who are righteous before God, a people who can dwell before God without shame as Adam and Eve did in the garden, that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about that in Christ we have been justified and we consider that a man is justified by faith in Christ. He is made righteous. The second element really central to Paul's theology is the theme of the body of Christ, that all different Christians are members of one body of the body of Christ. Just as the Holy Spirit dwelt in the historical body of Christ, so also the Holy Spirit dwells in the body of Christ as the church. The Holy Spirit dwells within all the members of Christ's body, all the members of the church united as one. And because of that, because they are all one body, Paul also speaks of the church as a temple and speaks of all the individual Christians' bodies themselves as a temple in 1 Corinthians 3, and in 1 Corinthians 6. So this image of Christ, of the body of Christ, as the church, is again that theme of how God dwells with his people now. Not only are the people made righteous through justification, but God dwells with his people. He is a holy land, the perfection of the holy land where God dwells through his church, which Paul reveals above all through the image of the body of Christ. So we have these two themes that are very much central to Paul. Jesus is the Messiah, the great king, the Davidic king, through whom God has established the universal kingdom of the church. And this universal kingdom is the kingdom in which people are holy through justification and they dwell with God because they live in the body of Christ. Those are themes that are throughout in sense, all of Paul's writings, all the epistles of Paul. But I want to focus in this lesson not on all of Paul's teachings, but on a few hymns. A few specific passages where Paul speaks so eloquently and so fervently and carefully about Christ in these epistles that many scholars think they literally are hymns. They certainly are poems to Christ. But many scholars actually think they're hymns because they're so carefully worded, and often the. Wording and the vocabulary that Paul uses in these little passages is different from the rest of the vocabulary He uses in those letters, which makes some scholars think that perhaps he literally quoted some of these sections from perhaps hymns that were use in the early church, or perhaps they became hymns after Paul wrote them. We don't really know, but we do know that they're very careful and they're very beautiful. It's a very high level of poetry revealing what Christ has done for us. We're going to look at two specifically in today's lesson. First, I want to look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20. These six verses in Colossians are a wonderful hymn of Christ. And again, we see that the vocabulary, the cadence, the structure is very precise. I want to read it first and hopefully you can follow along in your Bibles. If you have one at home, I would recommend that you go get one. If you need to push pause and come back, please do. Colossians 1 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities. By the way, I'm using the RSV Catholic edition translation of the scriptures available through Ignatius Press. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. As we read through this, we hear many wonderful images. Christ is the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. What's going on here? Well, scholars, as they analyze this passage, have seen that it follows a somewhat common literary structure called the chiasm, or also known as what's known as a chiastic structure. And this chiastic structure is literally from the Greek word kai, or simply a cross, that in a phrase, you take the first idea and the second idea, you say the second idea then, and then you return to the first idea at the end. It's not as complicated as it sounds. I can give you a brief example. President John F. Kennedy was famous for making his challenge to the youth of America when he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That's an example of a chiastic structure. Ask not what your country, that's the first, can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And we see that if we want to put it as a pattern, we would say that first we have A, then we have B, then we have B prime, and then we have A prime. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That's one example. That's the same pattern that we have going on here in Colossians. And we have to listen to it with the proper ears. Think about it. It begins in 115. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things are created in heaven and earth. So he is the firstborn of all creation. All things are in him. All things were created through him and for him. Go to the end of the passage in verses 18. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn from creation. Now he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven and on earth. So just as he is the creator, through him all things are created, we return at the end and find out that he is the redeemer of all things. All things are reconciled through him. He's the firstborn of creation, he's the firstborn from the dead. A note there, by the way, on the language of firstborn of creation, as we'll see later, that has been sometimes misunderstood to make it seem as though Christ himself was a creature. He is the firstborn, as though he's the oldest of the creatures. But that here is not the point. The point is that he is the pattern of all things that follow. He is the pattern of all things that are created just as He is the pattern of all things that are raised. He is the first born. in that sense, not that He is literally created, but that through Him as the Word, He as the Word which has within itself the perfection of every creature, although it's fully divine, through Him all things are created, so we have the perfection of all creatures in Him. If that's the first part and the second part, what then of the middle? Well, what happens if I would want to call our B section here would be verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul literally means here, all things, everything, the whole universe. In the whole universe, all of creation is held together in Christ. So what does that mean about our next verse then? Well, it's no longer all things. It's no longer the universe. But now in verse 18, it says, He is the head of the body, the church. What's the parallel that's set up? The universe on the one hand, now the church on the other. Creation and the universe on one hand is deliberately contrasted with the church and the new creation, the church and redemption on the other. What is Paul doing in this hymn of Colossians 1:15 through 20? Well, what he's doing is saying is that the only way to understand Christ is to see his connection to the creation. The only way to understand redemption is to see its relationship to creation. Specifically, what he's getting at is that if redemption is as significant in a way as the creation itself. Redemption is the new creation. It's the restoration of everything that creation was meant to be, the perfection of creation, has now been accomplished in the redemption through Jesus Christ. If we think about first, what does that mean about Christ? What it means about Christ is that Christ is the one through whom the very world is created. He is now the very same one through whom the world is redeemed. What does that say about the church? Well, just as the universe is all things that were created by God, it is now in a sense replaced by the church. The church is meant to be the new universe, the new creation, which is properly ordered and properly reconciled to God. So just as all things were originally created, the universe is created through Christ. Now the church, the new things, the new heavens and the new earth, the church, and not here meaning, when we talk about the church, I don't mean a physical building. Paul doesn't mean the physical building of the church, or even the local community of believers, or even the community of believers all over the world, or even the community of believers all throughout time. He means all things, the angels, the saints, the martyrs, believers in past ages, present ages, future ages, all over the world, everything together, drawn together in the new creation. So that the new creation is expansive and includes literally, as Paul says, right everything everything that is meant to be come together the first creation went wrong through adam's sin but christ is going to overcome that christ has overcome that and he's actually established and perfected a new creation through his resurrection through his cross and that's in a way some of the things that paul is teaching there if we look at a parallel passage in ephesians 1 verses 3 through 11 we have another great hymn to Christ. I want to specifically just look at one particular phrase here where we have a very similar thing to the theme in Colossians. Paul talks about in Ephesians 1-9, for he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will. God has revealed in Christ the mystery of his will and he says this is the mystery of his will, his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So what is this mysterious purpose that God has held, that he has set it forth in Christ? It's a plan to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. What is God's plan for the universe? Paul teaches that it's been revealed in Christ. And the plan is specifically that God wants to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth, in Christ. St. Augustine wrote a beautiful phrase, right, that in the end there will be Christ and Him loving Himself. The great plan of God is to unite all believers, to unite the whole world into Christ, and in His Son have a new creation. So it just as Ephesians speaks about that the plan of the universe, the mysterious plan of God, is to unite all things in Christ, we see that same theme in Colossians. Colossians, which again, everything is united into Christ. Just as Christ is the head of the old creation, he is also the head of the church, which is the new creation. With that, I'd like to shift a little bit to Philippians. In Ephesians and Colossians, we have very much the cosmic Christ. The Christ who has created the world is now the Christ who has redeemed the world, and that redemption of the world is a cosmic redemption. It's a new universe that's created. In Philippians, we have in a way a little bit more of a focused teaching. Philippians as a whole, in Philippians 2 especially, is a great exhortation to humility. Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4, Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then to support that claim, To support that challenge to humility, he says, have this mind among yourselves which was in Christ Jesus. And that's his introduction to a second great hymn of Christ, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I'm gonna read it first for us, and please read along. Have this mind among yourselves which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, The Greek there is literally morphe theu, the form of God. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. In the form of a servant, morphe doulu, the form of a servant. And being found in human form, literally the Greek there again is anthropos. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So we have Jesus descending from the form of God, becoming a man, becoming found in likeness of man, and now descending all the way to death, even death on the cross. But now we will have the upshot afterwards, right? Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." So this is a beautiful hymn, a beautiful exhortation to humility, and it's a rich, rich mind for the church's reflection on who Christ is and what Christ has done. I want to begin a couple passages in here, a couple parts of this as we want to begin to pick it apart. I want to look at four in particular four parts of this passage that have often, in a sense, confused interpreters or often been the occasion for debate. First, I want to look at a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? How do we interpret it? Secondly, what does it mean to say that he emptied himself? Third, I want to look at the name of Jesus and that God's name now rests with Jesus. And finally, that this confession that Jesus is Lord. So to begin with, what does it mean when he says in verse 6, That though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, many different commentators have talked about that. St. Augustine kind of translated it in the Latin. It didn't sound as much a thing to be grasped, but literally it was a thing to be robbed, a thing to be stolen. St. Augustine used this passage. It would have read like this. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be stolen or a thing to be robbed. And Augustine would say he didn't consider, he didn't think he had to steal equality with God because he already was God. So Augustine used this phrase in a way to support the full divinity of Jesus. Others, in a sense, acting, reacting against Augustine and others, in a sense, reacting against the divinity of Christ, would try to criticize the church's teaching on the divinity of Christ by saying, though he was in the form of God, though he was like God, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be stolen. Jesus would have had to steal equality with God, but he didn't. So some people will interpret Philippians 2 to kind of criticize or to be against the full divinity of Christ. But both of these passages, I think in even Augustine's reading, because I think Augustine here is somewhat constrained by his need to refute heresy at that particular emphasis, that he actually kind of misinterprets the passage, or he doesn't interpret it as fully as he could here. And I think a better way of reading it, it's more in keeping with the Greek, as opposed to the Latin, it's not so much that he didn't count equality with God a thing to be stolen, but the Greek is more up into being read as he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be exploited. And here again, what does that mean then about the passage? Well, remember, Paul is exhorting his listeners to humility. And he says, you should be humble the way Christ was humble. Remember, Christ was in the form of God. But he didn't consider the fact that he was in the form of God as something to be exploited. Exploited for his own advantage. No, he emptied himself taking the form of a servant. So if we interpret it like that, then of course it supports the church's teaching and Augustine would have certainly agreed with that because though he was in the form of God, he didn't exploit it for his own benefit. Obviously he can't exploit equality with God for his own benefit unless he is equal with God. So the advantage of that interpretation is that not only does it safeguard the divinity of Christ, but it also says more. It doesn't merely say that Christ is divine, but it says Christ was humble because in his human nature, he didn't take advantage of his divine nature. And he says that that's, of course, what the Philippians should do as well. They should imitate Christ, not exploit what they have, but empty themselves and take themselves on the form of servants to serve one another. The second key phrase in here that often gets misinterpreted is this phrase in verse 7, he emptied himself. The Greek there is kenosis. Kenosis here literally means emptying oneself. It can also mean humbling oneself. It can also mean coming down. Some people, basically heretics, a variety of Christological theories have come out of this, and they're often called the kenotic theories, kenotic coming from the word kenosis, kenotic theories of Christ. And they literally think that Christ emptied himself, as though, namely, the Word emptied itself. It stopped being the Word when it became a man. So I think there's a couple good reasons why that reading isn't right. The first thing is there's no reason to interpret it literally. He emptied himself as though that means he stopped being God and became merely a man. In some ways, it's more natural to read kenosis here not as literally emptying oneself, but as stooping down and humbling oneself. As a king would empty himself if he began to serve others. As Jesus himself emptied himself when he washed the feet of the disciples. And if we remember that in this context, in Philippians, Paul is exhorting his listeners to humility. Of course, His point there is not that Christ emptied himself by stopping to be the Word, or by no longer remaining the Word, by giving up governance of the universe while he was in Galilee as man. His point is simply to emphasize that Christ, who was in the form of God, emptied himself. He became humble. He became humble as a servant. He's telling his listeners, they also ought to empty themselves, not empty themselves as stop being human, No, empty themselves by giving up whatever rights that they can give up, whatever is due them and to be a service to others, to be a true servant as Christ himself was. The third theme I want to draw attention to in Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is the significance of the name of Jesus. Paul here says in verse 10 that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. What does it mean to say the name of Jesus? Paul is trained as a good Jew, in some ways one of the best Jews. He was trained under the rabbi Gamaliel, who was one of the most famous rabbis in his time. And Paul was one of his best students, one of the most zealous Pharisees who was earlier in Acts chasing and hunting down the Christians as heretical Jews. So Paul was a very trained Jew. And he knew that in the history of Israel, God's name was very central. Jacob asked for the name of God when he wrestled with God in Genesis 28. God appeared to Moses and Moses asked for God's name and God gave his own name to Moses. He said, "I am who I am" in Exodus 3:14. In Deuteronomy 12, the central sanctuary, the temple in Deuteronomy 12 is literally the place where God will make his name dwell. He says, "The place which the Lord God will choose to make his name dwell there, thither shall you bring burnt offerings and sacrifices. You will sacrifice in the temple because God's name will dwell there. In First Kings 8, when Solomon dedicates the temple, he says, my name shall be there. God's name dwells in the temple. So it's very clear that God's name is above all other human names. And Paul here says that that name is now given to Jesus this is verse 9 of Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That name of God which is above every name is now bestowed on Jesus, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. So Paul is clearly affirming Jesus' full divinity, because if Jesus were not fully God, Paul would be idolatrous for saying this. So he's saying that just as we only worship God, we also worship Jesus. And this follows to my last point about that it says every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That the divine name Yahweh in Hebrew wasn't pronounced by the Jews, so it was translated into the Greek translation of the Old Testament as Kyrios. So Kyrios, which means Lord, is the word that the Jews used in Greek to refer to Yahweh. So, in this context, when he says that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, he is saying that Jesus Christ has the name Yahweh. He is called Lord. There is no other Lord. Just as God the Father is Lord, now Jesus is Lord as well. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at CatholicThinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.